On today's show, Bent TV legend Lindsay Karloff joins us. We also chat with Michael Batira about his new single, The Green Garden. And later, we chat with Nevin Esperovska from the Victorian Pride Lobby. 3CR While the legendary Lindsay Karloff was a fixture on Bent TV for years here in Melbourne. And recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with Lindsay after she'd returned from a trip to Trentham in country Victoria. Look, honestly, James, I, I care for my mother, do some part-time caring. And I have to admit, it is good to be able to get away and out, you know, but you basically have to have papers, you know, to to move, um, you know, to, to verify why you, you're heading off to Trentham. But it's, it's good to get away, actually, and um, get out of the city and, you know, yeah, just basically get amongst some nice greenery and, and um, of course, the old architecture that I always love. Absolutely. Uh, what's the vibe like in the country? How are people kind of, you know, feeling about the pandemic? Well, it was interesting, James, because I was up there early April because my mother was in um, Ballarat Hospital. And it was interesting to see um, how quickly they basically went into lockdown. Like I went to Wendery Shopping Centre. In Ballarat, there were tapes around chairs immediately, so you couldn't sit down. People were social distancing a lot better than what they do in Melbourne. But the interesting thing was um, that Trentham became a ghost town literally within a matter of minutes. And it was interesting because when I'd sort of venture off to visit her in hospital, because, of course, I was staying there, um, the wildlife was crossing the road. You know, there were, um, I don't know, sort of ibises crossing the road. There was... Um, a couple of koalas in my mother's driveway. Um, she lives virtually next door to the op shop. And I was out there one night, you know, looking at the stars as you do in the country and having a cuppa. And there's a kangaroo with her baby on the grounds of the op shop. So the animals got into it really, really quickly and felt safe. But it was it was like a ghost town. It was it was a little bit spooky, but um, sort of a little bit like a Stephen King novel waiting to have and happen, I think. Wow, I can just yeah. visualize that. Sounds amazingly <laughs> picturesque. It was, it is. But it was interesting. And co then coming back to Melbourne, the level of social distancing was non-existent. So people in the country, um, they sort of got into it very, very quickly, very quickly. Lindsay, I remember the last time you were on the show, it would have been around 2000 and you were working on radio with the legendary Kay Sarah. You've got quite a history in community media. Oh, look, absolutely. I've done... Um, I've done Bent TV for many, many, many years, I think, until people got sick of me and turned me off anyway. Uh, Bits and Bobs with Joy Radio. I did uh, We Co-Host. I can't remember the name. Oh, Lunchtime with Kay Sarah on Joy. And um, and then later on, I think, um, it, oh, look, around two, oh, a little bit after 2000, maybe two two. 2002, something like that. Anyway, I was co-hosting detours as well and then sort of did the odd sort of, odd sort of guest spot. Um, also, I worked for Brother Sister in the early days. Um, what else have I done? And, of course, the also directory a few times. So you would have worked with some titans of the Melbourne queer community and queer media. Oh, absolutely, James. I mean, some of the people that I have worked with um, – Incredible people, absolutely incredible people. And I think it's that thing about uh, community media, especially gay community media, where you, you acknowledge that you're actually doing something really, really big, um, absolutely huge. And, you know, one of my biggest delights was when I was at Bank TV in the, in the 90s, we had a lot of young, very, very young um, volunteers that, you know, and people volunteer for all sorts of reasons. And, and we had volunteers that were young, they'd just come out, they thought they'd get involved in media. And it wasn't until some years later I came across one of these volunteers and he said it wasn't until years later that he actually realised what we were doing. And, uh, and that really warmed my cockles because I thought, you know, somebody else out there, you know, has, has seen what we were doing back then. And it was huge in the 90s, huge. And it is incredible that, you know, we as volunteers have just created this incredible queer media landscape in Victoria, which has kind of, you know, kept going in the new manifestation in the 21st century online and with podcasts and with live streaming. It's quite incredible. 
Yeah, and and it's interesting, James, because you know I I was um, having a chat to someone from Bing TV who's with Bing TV now. We sort of did a little interview, and and I was just thinking, you know, if we put these kids now um, that are involved in community media, if we put them in our old uh, Channel Thirty One studio. I don't think they really know what to do because, you know, there's these old cameras and, you know, having to do a white balance and, and these things are just, you know, like so antiquated now that I think they'd be totally lost. And, and I sort of wish that we had this technology back then because back then in the 90s we were producing two and a half hours of TV and and that was big, and especially when you're using, you know, literally cameras that were shoe boxes with a toilet roll at the end, you know, they were so old and so dilapidated. And, um, you know, what we could have done back then, and, and our reach would have been so much broader as well. So I'm sort of a little bit envious of the new technology. Tell us about some of the incredible characters that you interviewed over the years that you had on your shows. Oh, James, God, there there were so many. Um, look, I remember around, um, I think it was a midsummer, and uh, because we were interviewing people that were exhibiting during the midsummer festival, and we had one girl, and she wouldn't, it was honestly, I really do think this girl was born on Mars and just placed on Earth to do her thing, because we could not get um, a name out of her. She had this alias, and she was doing this incredible show. And every one of us just became absolutely so enthralled by what she was saying. This, you know, the um, the floor manager was waving at us, and she just kept going. And and when I saw, because I've never ever watched myself, you know, a whole show, but I actually saw a little snippet of this, and I'm just sitting there absolutely agape at what she was saying, and she just wouldn't stop. So we couldn't stop her, and I think she was still talking when the credits rang. But we had people on James. Um, there was a guy that ran the um, sort of an equivalent, I suppose, Pride in um, London. He he was on the show. Of course, the amazing local talent that we have, you know, um, of course we can't not mention the drag queens that, that really, are, you know, some of them are very politically active out there. Um, the people in the community, you know, I remember interviewing the Bears and just being absolutely fascinated about their subculture within the community. Um, Jenny Pineapple. I don't know if you've ever come across Jenny Pineapple. She's a, an artist and she was brilliant to interview. Um, Richard Morrison, I did an interview with him because he's gone on to do great things now in the art world. We got to interview other local celebrities, Kate Langbrook, the cast from Prison, you know, the old Prisoner. Wow. Uh, yeah, they were a bit of a hoot. Um, of course, we and we'd always meet our guests at Bar 44, which was two doors down, and just sitting around having a beer with these people before we went on um, was just, it was amazing because, you know, not one of them ever sort of looked down at us as being community media or anything like that. You know, they were so absolutely supportive of us. It, it was wonderful. Um, who else? I mean, there were so many Janes. What about people like Kerry Lagore and Miss Candy, you know, drag icons here in Melbourne? Oh, well, I never, ever actually got to interview um, Kerry Lagore, although I used to press her constantly for an interview. But um, I remember doing a fabulous interview with Miss Candy and Barbara Quicksand because I don't know if you remember when they were running drag lessons at Box Hill TAFE. And I remember doing this interview with them and it was an absolute hoot because, you know, I'm not tall by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm just surrounded by sequins and plumage and they were just the best two people to interview because they also had that show that was on at the old market or something like that, Candy and, and Barbara. They were fabulous to interview. And you must have come across the iconic Yvonne Gardner. She did a stint on 31 as well. Um, she was with us for a very short while. Um, I was invited back to resurrect Big TV about five or six times, you know, because it, it just kept on falling into these pits. And um, Yvonne did come along as a, a volunteer for a short time. And um, I think sometimes she might have been a bit overwhelmed with just how much work does go go into it. But she was very, very supportive and she was on um, oh, she was on one of the panel shows that we were producing as well, and always had very relative pertinent pertinent things to say about the community, and of course her work, which she really never felt comfortable talking about. Her incredible work with the HIV positive community. 
Yes, yeah. Very, you know, just an absolute stalwart. But, you know, she never really wanted to be interviewed about that stuff. She just sort of, you know, just wanted to be on the panel and just part of it all, which was fabulous. 3CR. And you're listening to an interview with Lindsay Karoloff on 3CR. It's in your face. And, of course, you go way back on the on the lesbian scene here in Melbourne, the days when we actually had lesbian bars, when we actually had the glass house. In fact, I think you were living on top of a bar for a while. Uh-huh, yeah, I managed the glass house, James, in um, 2000 for about six months. And believe me, that was a learning curve, an absolute learning curve because, I, you know, I have a bit of a corporate background and thought I'd take all my talents, you know, into this job and quickly had to reassess because one of the things that I realised, because basically a very, very short history of what was happening there, the police wanted to close the glass house down. But one of the things that I realised about the glass house and talking to the, the police and the Deputy Commissioner of Police and the the uh, Minister of Licensing and Gaming. And one of the things that I said to them when I was struggling to keep that bar open for women is that the Glass House was a working-class hotel. It was basically working-class women. And when you look at that demographic, if you look at a working-class hotel in any suburb, they basically have the same challenges. You know, there's going to be people there that are low socioeconomic uh, there are people there who are angry. There are people there who just want to get drunk. There are people there who, who want to forget. They drink to forget. And when you look at that in a hotel that's full of gay women and you see the same thing happening but the police really coming down because, point one, it's a gay pub and, point two, they're women and how dare they behave like this, um, I actually put my point across like that, that this is a working-class pub. These these women come from a... Some of them came from shocking backgrounds, James, and I actually got to talk to them. And, of course, you know, I find people's stories fascinating. And and then when you learn, learn where they've come from and learn why they drink and why they get angry when they drink and just trying to sort of, you know, talk to them, make them feel more welcome, and basically I tried to make them all feel special. And my proudest moment was when a woman came up to me one day and she and she just said to me, Lindsay, we haven't got an ashtray on our, on our table. And I thought, great, because once upon a time, they'd just be butting their cigarettes anywhere. So it was a bit of a struggle. It was a time when I learned so much and so much more about lesbians and where we come from and why some, you know, well, some people behave the way that they do. Unfortunately, in the end, it was closed down and now women don't have that space. They don't have that space to vent. They don't have that space to, you know, have a drink, get angry, get sad. And I and I think that's really, really sad, really incredibly sad for, and especially young gay women. So what did the police say to you about why they wanted to close it down? Did they say, oh, look, there's all these brawling lesbians and that's why we want to close it? What was their justification? Were they really so overt with their homophobia? Oh, absolutely, James. And you hit the nail right on the head. They, um, I remember the guy who was the deputy um, police at that, st- in, uh, that stage. I can't remember his name. Probably I wouldn't mention his name if I could remember it. And it was, and it was difficult. I mean, there were licensing issues. But, you know, they always said, and when I was there, we never had a brawl. I actually rang the cab companies and said, look, if you've got cabs in the area, can they please cruise past? Because we used to ring cabs for women. I encouraged the women not to wait for par- for cabs, not to wait for pubs, not to wait for cabs on the street, um, to actually, you know, wait by the side door, not on Gibbs Street, but the, the side door, Um and, you know, so they'd be safe as well because there are all sorts of characters cruising past, as you could imagine, trying to, you know, pick fights with lesbians. But, yeah, they were just incredibly homophobic. I was amazed at the level of homophobia that, that was projected at these women. And that that made me very, very angry, but it also sort of got my corporate shekels up a bit so that when I was in those meetings, I, you know, presented myself in the most um, positive um, confident way that I possibly could. And of course, you know, the Glass House, apart from the fact that it was a lesbian bar, I mean, it wasn't particularly unusual for Collingwood or Fitzroy during that time, because of course, they they had decades of pubs, histories of, you know, pubs with, you know, brawling kind of histories and working class communities and connections and all the dramas and, you know, wonderful things that go with that. 
Mm, and ex- exactly, and it was just the fact that this these were women, and you know that that a homophobe or, or look, there's still people out there homophobic or not that expect women to behave in a certain way, which is a 1950s, you know, Mrs. Beaver housewife. Well, you know, that ain't going to happen because, you know, women are as diverse, whether they be gay, straight, bi, trans, whatever. We're as diverse as anybody else out there. But it was that thing about brawling lesbians, you know, and, and lesbians are really aggressive and lesbians are this and lesbians that way. You know, when, when I sort of looked at some of the women in the, in the bar on any Saturday night, there were professional women. There were, you know, there was doctors, lawyers all in there just having a drink at this strange little pub. And, um, and again, you know, that trying to get that point across that this is like any other pub in, in Collingwood Fitzroy, except that it's women. It's work, generally working class women and, and the only model that they really have to work by is the model of their parents or their father when he used to drink. You know, it's so multi multi layered. You know, when you when you do run a bar and trying to understand that, and and you know, it's disappointing. And and I have to admit, I got very very angry with the police. I got um, interestingly enough, though the um, then minister of licensing and gaming, he was totally supportive of the hotel. He was saying, he was telling the, you know, uh, Commissioner of Police that this pub needs to stay open, that, you know, he's seen that there's a need for it and, you know, people do get angry. He was absolutely brilliant and totally on our side at that stage. You've seen some incredible changes. Uh, Where does the lesbian community meet now? I mean, and especially during a pandemic, like I guess it's all online. James, honestly, I have no idea. I have no idea. I haven't because I'm, you know, over 60 now, I might add. And um and I just sort of find um you know like my mates we sort of have dinners again like we used to in the seventies and eighties um you know we might cruise by the peel late at night just to stand at a bar and you know look at people watching their mobile phones basically but I, I really don't know and I think um, the scene has changed um, I've seen quite a lot of ageism. Uh, in the community, especially in the lesbian community. I, for one, won't go out because, you know, some of the things that I've heard that the old lesbians have been caught, called, I won't repeat. But um, I really don't know, James, and it's something that, you know, I wish, um, you know, somebody would just open a, a bar that is incredibly gay-friendly, incredibly age-friendly as well, just play really good music and, and you know, where we could just sort of, meet each other but I don't know that there's anything out there you know I I do watch to see and um you know I have no idea I know there's Sunday Licious I've never been there (laughs) um yeah I really don't know and and it's a bit sad you know because you know remember the old days when you know you'd be hanging out for brother sister to see what was on or MCV or god you know Melbourne Star Observer in you know the the ancient days but um yeah I, I don't know James good question but if I do find somewhere I'll let you know you mentioned uh Melbourne's queer press mm-hmm. but there are no queer Melbourne rags anymore which is a real loss it is it honestly is James but you know when when you look at it and it's it's a it's been a point of conversation for my myself and my pals over time because as we meld more into society we have to look at at the need for certain things that we've become used to. And I I believe that there is an absolute need for gay press, absolute need for gay press. The more visibility we have across every medium, you know, we absolutely need that. But, you know, as we meld more and more and our, you know, like we um, save same-sex marriage now, okay, you know, what do we write about there? You know, John and Johnny were engaged on the weekend. You know, we're going to become really tacky like that, you know, like the Herald Sun, you know, bridal pages. But, um, you know, and there's nothing online either. And that, that astounds me that somebody out there just hasn't, you know, opened a, a little web page and, you know, just with Melbourne News, what's happening in Melbourne, you know, stuff like that. And I have thought about it myself. Then I think, oh, God, the energy it's going to take, you know. But, yeah, it, it, it's sad. And and um, and we have such great talent. One of my friends is actually writing for Star Observer. And, um, and he actually put out a call today for, you know, any queer art, anything queer that's going on around Melbourne to let him know. And um, and I think it's a sad state of affairs, a really sad state of affairs. 
Of course, we do have a new online TV show with Kerry and Dolly. I really think they should have you back on the show as a guest. You know, I think you'd be wonderful. Oh, thank you, James. Now, I did do a, a wee interview with uh, Dina Curie because uh, Channel 31 was going to close down and, you know, there was all this hurabout and they've had a stay of execution again, I think, for 12 months. Um yeah, and I, and I sort of looked and I thought, yeah, you know, because once it's in your blood, you know, my mother was an old hoofer from way back. Uh, my, my grandma and my grandpa are actually, they did bits on the Tivoli. So I think I've got a little bit of that entertainment thing, you know, my DNA happening. But, um, but thank you. It's nice to be remembered. Lindsay Carolyn, thank you so much for talking to me on 3CR. It's been an absolute privilege to hear your voice again. Thank you, James, and all the best, and all the very, very best to 3CR because, you know, what a station stood the test of time. 3CR with James. Up next, Michael Patira, but in the meantime, here's his new single, The Green Garden. Green. 
mine is yellow With you my garden is green Without you my garden is yellow And climb through the trees Roast by the campfire The whole family I don't need to tell you It's easy to see My love What once was a dream Now comes reality Just watching those rainbows At night by the sea chatting with Michael and Michael begins that interview by describing what the Green Garden's about. It's a bit of a, uh, a personal song. Um, I guess at the foundation of it, it's a love song, but it's um, also kind of, it's a bit of a cinematic feel to it. I'm a bit of a movie buff, so I've always tended to um, write songs that are um, influenced by films and stories. So I'm a lover of stories. So this song kind of, uh, represents that 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 love that person that you just a, a little bit obsessed with and imagining a a kind of happy ever after with them. Um, it's to to the extreme, obviously, <laughs> but because um, it's a bit of a fantasy world. Hence uh, the the chorus, uh, the lyrics are with you, my garden's green. Without you, my garden is is yellow. So that kind of that love is 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 what is what is is required to that person, if that makes sense. It does indeed. Was it a real-life experience that kind of inspired all of this or was it a combination of reality and film? And if so, what film? Um, it definitely was a combination. Um, at the time, I was going through a phase of just, you know, trying to write songs inspired by films. And this one wasn't really inspired by a specific film, I don't think. I just think I love the kind of over-the-top storytelling of, of some fantasy films. Um, it also did have a... a uh, take part in, in a bit of a, a real life um, experience as well. So it, I kind of got it from that as well. It, a bit of a balance, I guess. It's interesting because I, I sense very much or I hear very much an 80s feel. And, of course, the 1980s, you know, the, the movie soundtrack was, was, you know, riding high, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's got some uh, – definitely got some elements to it. I worked with some great producers and uh, we really captured – the uh, cinematic feel that I was I was really going for with this particular song. 
So which producers did you work with? I worked with uh, two guys, um, Ezekiel and Michael. They, they are from Entente Music and uh, amazing producers in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, they're just, uh, just beyond my expectations. I mean, I'm, I'm just so happy with how it all turned out. You've got an incredible history with song dating back to when you were 11. You started writing songs and recording songs then, and you've written and recorded over 300 songs. It sounds like you're a bit of a child prodigy. Uh, oh, I don't know if I'd go that far. I, I think um, I was always a singer first and then growing up, you know, I always wanted to get into the industry and people always used to say to me, well, it's not really good enough that you can just sing. You have to be able to write. So I taught myself how to play piano, um, not not incredibly well, but just enough to, to get me by to be able to write songs. And I just started experimenting with songs and, you know, it just it just kind of snowballed from there. Just experience after experience, you kind of get a little bit better each time, uh, which is good uh, and expected. So, um, yeah, it just comes with experience, I guess, and just wanting that's what I wanted to do. Do you find that because you've got such an extensive, you know, experience on the on the piano, that writing ballads is is your shtick? Um, yeah, definitely, writing ballads uh, comes a little bit more natural. Uh, though I do love I do love an up tempo. Uh, song, but uh, to come up with them, it's a little bit more tricky, um, and also depending on the inspiration and whatnot. But yeah, I do, I do love a good ballad. I've got a bit of a soft spot for them. You've also got a background with the theatre, with the stage. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I do love doing musical theatre. I, I got into the amateur musical theatre scene uh, just after I left high school, and um, I just it's been something that I've loved. I did a lot of shows before I moved overseas, which was in 2010. Um, so before then, I did a whole bunch of shows, and then when I got back to Melbourne, uh, I, I did a few more. So I kind of got back into theatre when I when I came back from um, Canada. So it was it was a a, a big big passion of mine. I love going to see theatre and I love uh, performing in theatre. Just It's just a whole different experience, you know, to com- to performing your own material, you know, taking on characters and, and putting yourself in positions that are not so comfortable for you normally uh, and pushing your, your limits and boundaries. You spent quite a bit of time in Montreal. It, of course, has a proud music theatre scene. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, Montreal was great. Um, I really enjoyed uh, being being there. It's such an eye opener. You you know, it's a Canadian city, but the first language is French, and and it's so overwhelming being there uh, for that for that time. Just embracing a whole different culture. I always well, eventually, I, I called it the most European city in North America because I'd been around to the states a bit and seen some other cities, and I just feel like when you go back to Montreal after being in the states, it's just not like you're in North America. It's just a European city almost, you know, and it's a great, the music scene is so good there, you know, all new acts and new upcoming artists, they're embraced so well by the industry and, and the people of Montreal. They love going to a live gig. Um, it's just a, it's a huge live music scene, a huge arts culture, really. It's uh, It was a great time. I had a, I had a really good time there. It's lots of good memories. And, of course, it's got an amazing LGBTIQ scene, hasn't it, along St. Catharines. Uh, it must be the longest LGBTIQ strip in the world. I think it might be. I think it might be. And what a great strip it is. It's, it's, it's just, uh, just one of those tourist attractions. No matter where you come from, it's just one of those places you really have to visit while you're in Montreal. It's just it's a beautiful scene, especially in, in the summer when they just open up the street. And, uh, it's yeah, it's a spectacular place to visit during the summer for some nice uh, outdoor drinks (laughs) you also spent time in chicago that's an incredible city as well what did you do there Uh, in chicago i was fortunate enough i got to do a a couple of charity performances and also got to film a music video and uh got to work with a a record label out of there at the time uh very heavily into, into dance music um which is what i kind of was doing at the time, getting my music uh, into the clubs and stuff, trying to get through um, that side of the industry. Uh, so, but now I've gone back to my roots, obviously. But yeah, Chicago is a beautiful city. I really look forward to going back there someday soon, hopefully. Of course, you released your first single in 2011. Tell us about it. Yeah, so my first single was called Not Over Yet, um, and it was just a, a crazy experience to be able to release a single. Got to shoot the music video in New York City. Um, which was another incredible experience, something that you kind of you kind of dream of, and I didn't really think it would 
it would feel as good as it did, but it, it felt incredible. And um, getting remixes done and getting airplay on different radio stations and clubs and, and gyms around the world. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great, really. It was just my first kind of big experience in the industry. And it was uh, very overwhelming at the time, but I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. So it was a dance track by the sounds of it. Well, it was um, more of a pop track, actually. Um, very kind of medium tempo pop-ish track. But yeah, look, we had remixes done and the remixes were the, the, the versions that kind of got out into the public because I was working with labels at the time which uh, distributed dance music. Um, the original pop version didn't really get too much traction. It was more the remixes. Um, well, yeah, that's more or less how it all kind of ha- their plan was at the time. Uh, so it's kind of really refreshing to be back now doing things back from my roots, you know, doing what I what I know and really love. It sounds like the dance pop side of things was a commercial pursuit, uh, but doing more piano-based work, it sounds like that makes you happier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm a singer at heart, you know, and I, you've got to work to your strengths uh, and my, my vocal abilities is probably stronger than my dancing ability. So when I had to go dancing clubs and things like that, I don't really think it's something that people really wanted to see. Um, but I, I definitely, um, am more of a singer than anything, singer songwriter. So when I get to perform the songs that I write the way that I wrote them, it's much more meaningful to me. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely happier doing, doing this 100%. So it sounds like the industry was pushing you to be something that you weren't comfortable with. Um, wasn't so much pushing. It, it definitely was uh, discussed as an angle and, and uh, you know, a way to kind of break in and trying to get myself out there, uh, which was all fine. And I did get some good exposure with it. I, I really did. And I don't really regret doing any of that. Uh, it definitely was a fun time. Um, but at the same time, like people who were fans of the songs, were just fans of the songs because they were they were very dancey and, and not really for my writing skills or, or my vocal abilities or anything like that or me and my uh, myself as an artist. So it's been really good to kind of just lay it all down on the line and just put myself out there as I would like to be and um, being embraced for it, which is which is great. It sounds like the industry has had a lot of faith in you. I mean, launching you in North America. Uh, it sounds like in lots of ways, you know, your springboard was there rather than Australia. Um, in some ways, yeah, I definitely got a lot of my experience, if not all my experience so far from there, uh, just being in the industry, meeting, you know, management companies and labels and uh, going to do music conferences, um, going to Cannes to Me Dem, which is the music uh, once a year music uh, conference slash festival that all the industry tend to go to just being opened to so much of it. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of it came from there, but it's also so different here. And so that's why when I moved back to Australia, uh, I definitely kind of for a few few months, if not a year or so, felt like I was restarting from scratch. And uh, that kind of has its pros and cons, I guess, but it was kind of nice to have a bit of a clean slate and start building yourself back up again. So it sounds like you really needed that hiatus. Yeah, absolutely. I loved taking a break. Uh, well, because of that break, I got back into theatre while I was back in Melbourne. So that was a great thing. And it just reminded me how much I missed being on stage and needed to be back in theatre. So I got to do that while I was uh, just taking a break from my, my own music. Tell us about the theatre work you did in Melbourne when you returned. Um, I, my, I did a show with Altona City Theatre, which is out in Altona called Rock of Ages, um, where I got to play a great, a great role in that show. It was probably one of the most meaningful and, uh, uh, best roles I've had in a show. And, um, that really kind of changed a lot for me and it really pushed my boundaries as a performer because I never really considered myself, um, much of an actor, especially in theatre. Uh, more, more of just a singer-songwriter. So that really completely put me out of my comfort zone and it forced me to take on things that I never thought I'd be able to do. Uh, but fortunately, I think we, we did a great job at pulling it off. Uh, I was nominated for a Victoria Music Theatre Guild Award, which I was really, really stoked about uh, for that performance, which I never would have expected. Um, 
so that was that was a great experience. So I, I fortunately got I got to do that. I got to also be part of Shrek and oh, what else did I do? Shrek and I did a couple of pantomimes as well, like kids shows, which I really love because interacting with kids uh, is just so rewarding, especially when you see their faces while you're on stage and making making some jokes and stuff. So it's just I got to do some stuff that is not normally uh, something I would particularly do, but I I loved it just the same. Did you find that being on stage and having to project your speaking voice? Uh, really kind of helped you to rejuvenate your singing voice or strengthen it at least? Yeah, absolutely. Like just, just being on stage in a theatre production for your vocal ability, even your stamina, like moving around and singing on stage, it just builds up so much, you know. And sometimes when I'm just sitting at the piano, just having a bit of a sing, I, I feel like it's hard work because I'm, I haven't been on stage for a while. So, yeah, just being in a show and, and, and get yeah, projecting and pushing yourself, you get into a routine so your body becomes accustomed to it and it's almost like a muscle memory and you build, you become stronger because of it. So, yeah, there's heaps of um, pros to doing that for sure. Do you find that sitting down every day and playing the piano is very much part of your daily routine? Um, yeah, it, it, it is probably, uh, more so now during lockdown. Um, it's almost like being given the gift of time with this, with this whole lockdown. It's a little bit of a silver lining, a bit of a positive, if you like, uh, to come out of something, uh, negative. Um, so yeah, look, sitting at the piano writing and just working on, on my songs and working on other little projects I've got going on and love to sing a few covers here and there just, just to have a bit of a sing for fun. Um, it's definitely, all part of my day for sure. Will the Green Garden be part of an album? I am definitely looking at uh, putting an EP out mid next year. Uh, once uh, things all go back to normal, um, I would love to put an EP out and do some uh, some live gigging and maybe some overseas stuff as well, if uh, if travelling permits me. And uh, what about your next single? Uh, what can we expect there? Um, the next single, you can expect something a little bit more upbeat, I think, probably a little bit more um, mainstream maybe, if you like, uh, as The Green Garden's a bit more of a, a waltzy ballad, something a little bit more up-tempo for the next single. Michael Butera, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thank you. 3CR. Isolated, quarantined. Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 QueerAidNarm Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Well, the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby has changed its name to the Victorian Pride Lobby. This week I chatted with their co-convener, Nevna Sporovska, and Nevna begins their interview by discussing why the lobby changed its name. Great question, and I'm very glad you asked. We recognise that there'd been significant changes over the last 20 years since the lobby was formed in the LGBTIQ play plus community, and we were actively considering how we could better reflect and be more inclusive of the community we advocate on behalf of. Over the past decades, our work has also expanded from a focus on legal rights to a broader focus on social justice and equality. The lobby advocates not just for gay and lesbian Victorians, but for queer, bisexual and same-sex attracted people who may not use the labels gay and lesbian to describe their orientation. Broadly, we also value and celebrate the diversity of sexual orientations in our community, 
So that's why we changed our name to the Victorian Pride Lobby. So it's all about reflecting the diversity within the community. Absolutely, and being more inclusive and recognising that even our committee of management may not fit under the terms gay and lesbian. So we wanted to make sure that we were reflective of the community that we were advocating for. So tell us about the journey, the process journey that the lobby went through to to reach this point. It's always a bit of a journey with these things, and that's because it's really important to do it right. So last year, as an initial starting point, we reached out to some of our fellow community organisations to bring the conversation to light. So we spoke to Transgender Victoria, Rainbow Families Australia, Bisexual Alliance Victoria, Equality Australia, Intersex Human Rights Australia, as well as the Victorian Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality. From that point, we then raised this at our last AGM in 2019 and received unanimous to support to undertake the consultation process and canvas community opinion and seek suggestions for a new name. What then happened is we undertook two rounds of feedback from our supporters and members about the proposed name change. Overwhelmingly, those surveyed supported the name change, as well as the aim to be more inclusive of the community we advocate on behalf of. 98% of the people we consulted were in favour of the lobby changing its name. A next really important step for us was to contact the founders of the lobby to seek their input and to further engage them in another round of consultation. We then had one last round where we took the proposed name, which was the Victorian Pride Lobby, back to the community groups and back to our members for one final uh, seeking their input. Then this Saturday just passed on the 18th of July, we convened a special general meeting of our members to vote on the name change and it was unanimously supported by all. Wow. So it's a very comprehensive consultation process that you undertook. I'm fascinated by what the founders of the lobby said to you when you consulted them. I was really interested to find out that the name was contentious even back in 1997. So there was discussion about whether it would be the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Lobby, whether the term bisexual should be included, whether it also needed to state that the term transgender should also be part of the name. So it's really interesting that these conversations are an ongoing thing in our community. Um, And even back then, it it came down to a vote whether it would be the Victorian Gay and Lights Lobby, and that was decided at the time. So it sounds like it was possibly more controversial in 1997 than it was in 2020. (laughs) Absolutely. And it was interesting to reflect on the experience uh, because most of our community groups come or are formed around an issue and this was issuing on behalf of gay and lesbian people in Victoria. So it was very much contentious about whether it was even exclusionary back then as well. So it sounds like the Victorian Pride Lobby is going to be focusing more on policy issues and campaigns rather than policy issues that revolve around law reform. We'll still be very much focused on law reform. So while the name may change, we have said our remit, our mission statement and our values will remain the same. So we'll very much continue to be working with and lobby on behalf of the whole community. But it's very important for us uh, to note that we won't speak in place of bi, trans, gender diverse, intersex and asexual community members but instead we work with their corresponding community organisations. However, law reform will be central to what we do as a lot of our work revolves around submissions to government and MPs as well as broader campaigns. What are some of the priority issues that you're working on now and hope to work on uh, in in the near future? One of the major pieces of work that we'll be picking up is the community sentiment and relationship with police. We've been really interested and have done a fair bit of work on this since the Nick Nomopoulos Chairs and Hyenas incident. And the lobby has been closely working and examining the IBAC report that was handed down a couple of weeks ago. From there, we really wanted to understand what the community was feeling with the police, where the rooms for improvement was, and what they would like the lobby to do as an organisation. We've also been working on the anti-vilification inquiry in Victoria 
So, so far we've written two submissions and spoken at the inquiry. What we're really seeking to do there is suggest a proposal for a one-stop shop to address discrimination, harassment and vilification. The test for vilification to be used, we're interested in exploring that, as well as the questions for criminal penalties versus social reform and the appropriate terminology to capture anti-LGBT vilification in the community. So whose remit would, would those tasks fall within? Would it fall within the role of uh, Ro Allen, the current commissioner for, for, for gender and diversity, or, or would you envisage a new, a new portfolio being created somehow? With the anti-vilification inquiry, that's currently before parliament at the moment, so we're just one of many groups that are participating in that. And with the community sentiment work, that's something that we've uh, been in contact with the commissioner about. And when we have the results of, it'll be something that we'll be disseminating widely. You mentioned the police. Is that the key issue that the community is talking to you about at the moment? It's definitely one that we're receiving a lot of community feedback and concern about, especially in relation to the hares and hyenas incident. So for those who may not be familiar Last year, there was a raid on the Hares and Hyenas bookshop and one of the residents there was brutalised by the police. He had his arm ripped out of his socket uh, in an unfair arrest. From that time, the lobby has very much stood by the people in that incident. However, we can't say too much as the matter is currently before court. From there, we definitely noticed and have received a lot of feedback from people concerned about the remit of police and the amount of force that they're able to use. So that's part of the reason why we're engaging in this campaign at the moment. Is the community raising concerns with the lobby about over-policing during the current pandemic? There was a bit of concern when a proposal for protective services officers to have increased police powers So this would almost bring them in line with the type of powers that Victoria Police would have. However, it's not reflective of the fact that they receive far less training than the police themselves. So there's also a record of PSOs uh, having some issues with community members and currently no evidence stands that they make people in the community safer. So that was something that was raised with us and something that we expressed concern with that should go, rather than being a legislator, to go to the Social Reform Committee for further consideration as we felt that that was something that was being rushed through. The sex worker community has a high representation of LGBTIQ community members. It's another group concerned about the police. Has the lobby made a submission to Fiona Patton's decriminalisation of sex work review? We are planning to make a submission to that and work very closely on matters with the sex work community, with uh, representatives of that community, absolutely. So tell us about the journey that led you to becoming the co-convener of of the lobby. It's a lovely yellow brick road that uh, brought me to be the co-convener and it's a very proud history to be part of that legacy. So I have a background in politics myself, having worked previously for the Australian Sex Party and for the fabulous Fiona Patton in her first term of parliament. Like many, I spent a fair chunk of time in the marriage equality campaign and other various campaigns across the years. And for the last five years, I've also volunteered with National Homeless Collective, which is a First Nations-run grassroots organisation on their Melbourne period project, which is quite iconic in certain parts of the city as it provides menstruation items and support for women, non-binary people and trans men experiencing homelessness. Uh, At the moment, I currently work in the NGO sector for the Peak Body for Child and Family Services, but my passions are very much around grassroots campaigning and activism. Everything from drug law reform, social equity, homelessness advocacy, you'll find me at the march with a placard in my hand. Fantastic. Of course, you mentioned Fiona Patton. You did run for her party when it was called the Sex Party at the 2014 state election for the seat of Richmond. Any chance you might run again? (laughs) I've hung up my running shoes uh, for the time being. I very much enjoyed being a candidate with the Australian Sex Party, but now I'm very much channeling my efforts into community organisations. You're a big supporter of Climate 5. Can you tell us about that campaign? 
That's a really important one that we set up following the Australian bushfires summer. And it was trying to channel a lot of the disappointment, sorrow and hopelessness that people were feeling as that was happening. Well, it wasn't even over the summer. That was from the previous winter all the way up until this year. We put together five simple actions that people could take that would have a direct impact on their environment, everything from paying the rent, which is paying reparations and restitutions to First Nations people in our community, to switching to toilet paper, recognising that only a tiny percentage of people in this country are using recycled toilet paper. I think in my bubble, it's easy to think, oh, well, everyone's doing this. But when you start broadening those actions out, you can see that not everyone is reflective of the actions that you're taking. And on a broader scale, talking about what our superannuation is invested in and the damage that that can have if it's not ethical and actively funding fossil fuel industries. You posted a beautiful tribute on Twitter recently to your parents with a wonderful photo of you when you were a baby with them when they arrived in Australia from the former Yugoslavia. Can you tell us about how your parents' amazing journey to Australia and uh, and your early years has, has impacted on, on your strong commitment to social justice? I'm very thankful for my parents and all parents um, that have been displaced by war. So following the start of the Yugoslav war, we were very fortunate to receive a humanitarian visa in Australia. It took a fair bit of effort, as I can imagine, in, in the context of what was happening over there to uproot your entire family, to go to a country that you're completely unfamiliar with, to be separated from everything that you know to be home in such traumatic circumstances for the sole purpose of giving your children a better start at life or envisaging for them what life might look like and thinking, I don't want my children to live through this. So seeing everything that happened back home in Yugoslavia during that time, that was during the time of the Bosnian War and um, the Bosnian genocide and ethnic cleansing just imprinted a deep sense of injustice onto me. Having the opportunity in any capacity to work towards the betterment of the world is just something that I've pursued from a very early age uh, and continues to be my driving force to this day. And that was Nevna Sparovska from the Victorian Pride Lobby. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face, taking us out of the breeders with all nerve.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Three C.